from PRX. Stew. Stew. D. D. E. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you a, are. No, no. You've I'm, got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, why a language professor hates the much-loved elements of style. These things make good people insecure about their speech and their writing. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Tell me something. What do you know about Wakanda? It's actually like having a coloring book and someone giving you the crayons. You have to decide where you're going to infuse what. Ruth Carter builds movie characters and movie worlds with fabric and jewelry and paint. And for that work, she's been nominated twice for an Oscar. But in her 30 years as a Hollywood costume designer, she has never dressed a character really anything like this. Everything about setting up the Black Panther was new. The script, for example, was secret. They sent me, like, somebody pulled some pages out of the Black Panther comic book, and I was like, is this what I have to prepare for this? And I understood the story of the Black Panther and the world of Wakanda by reading the pieces uh, that they sent me, but I also had to go on and do my own research. And so I decided that with, you know, it taking place in a fictitious place in Africa that I could take from all of the elements of Africa and infuse it into the costumes. Carter has been accurately recreating period costumes for a while. Her costume designs evoked the world of Malcolm X during his 1940s zoot suit phase in Spike Lee's biopic. And in Ava DuVernay's Selma, 1965, Alabama. We will not wait any longer. Give us the vote. But after these terrific real-life recreations, she's now been hired to imagine and create a wholly fictional Afrofuturist vision of a sector of the Marvel Universe in Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. The Black Panther has been the protector of Wakanda for generations. Now it is time to show the outside world who we are. So, Ruth, after doing these totally realistic evocations, what was it like to do this big superhero picture? I feel like I have been doing superhero movies all along. It's the same thought process. You know, Thurgood Marshall is the superhero. So there really is no difference in terms of the thought pattern. But I get what you're asking me. You know, this is a guy who could have exceptional powers, who wears a skin suit, a cat suit, and he is the king of a fictitious country. Right. So how do you prepare for that? And, you know, I feel like it's the same. 
It's the same. You do a lot of research. The team at Marvel were already well into what they call visual development. So they had images that they showed me uh, my first day of, you know, the new Panther suit and of the, you know, Dora Milaje. The Dora Milaje being being elite female warriors. The elite female that, yeah, they protect the king. You know, they protect the Black Panther, who is the king. So that sounds like in this instance, there was probably more work that had been done on your job before you arrived than probably you'd ever encountered. You know, there is a brand that they want to kind of talk about and develop, you know, and it's it's no offense to the costume designer because there was a world of characters that I had to design in a very short period of time. So somebody giving me a leg up on what they (laughs) were looking for was, you know, a gift. It was a gift. So talk about designing costumes for a, a very specific real time and place, like what you did recreating 19th century England and America for Steven Spielberg in Amistad. Well, he flew me all over the world to look for these pieces because you have to basically go everywhere for this stuff. But uh, I came back with courtroom etchings from a flea market in London somewhere. I came back multiple times with different aspects. Like he wanted to know what the Africans look like in court. And I had read that the missionaries gave them uh, all these really clean white shirts to wear to... um, Um, the courtroom and someone uh, wrote that they look like doves sitting in court. And so I wanted to present the doves in Amistad. Give us free. Your Honor, please instruct the defendant that he cannot disrupt these proceedings with such a... Give us us free! It's really interesting. That example from Amistad and the Doves, it's like a fiction writer writing historical fiction, like finding this bit of reality and then summoning that into the fiction that any movie is. That's really interesting. Yes, yes. For other uh, period pictures of which you've done many, Malcolm X, Selma, the Butler, others, how do you go about doing the research? Well, a lot of times it's a little bit daunting to know that you're going to be responsible for recreating uh, something that already exists. So there's going to be the criticism along aligned with it if you don't get it right. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I try to look at the environment in the world first. So I might look at documentaries about this particular point in time. I did this with Amistad. I did it with Roots. Um, then I, I have my own personal library and I comb it for anything that could relate to what I'm doing. And it's hundreds of books, but, you know, it runs the gamut from every historical picture I've done. I have a part of it in my Uh library. Uh Uh, And then I go outside. I can access the Library of Congress. I can go to... um, photographer's reference um, on Marshall. I found Teeny Harris, who was a photographer, and his collection was a lot of uh, candid photos of people enjoying themselves in the 1930s and 40s. This was for the your, the, the film about Thurgood Marshall that you recently did. Yes, Marshall, yeah. yes. How could a man have a fair trial when he's denied counsel of his choice? When the members of his race are eliminated from service on his jury, when 
Fear and bias against his race are the central points of the case against him. Knowing what I know about what was happening uh, in and around them, in their society and the culture at the time, I start looking at them and saying, wow, you know, how did they break through those barriers and how did they create a look for themselves that spoke to where they were at that time? And so I relate those pictures to the story of the film. So if it's the NAACP or if it's Malcolm X giving a speech, I not only look at Malcolm X, but I look at all the people around Uh him. uh Before you start drawing your own, okay, I want him to be wearing this or her Mm -hmm. to be wearing that, like, how long does that research period last? Is it a couple of weeks, a month, typically? It depends on how much time you have. On Malcolm X, uh, Spike Lee contacted me months before I was on the actual film. And I wrote the Department of Corrections in Boston because he was incarcerated in Boston in his early years. And so I wanted to look at his file. I wanted to read his letters. Uh, that was months ahead. They granted me permission and they sat me down in a cubicle and I read his letters and I looked at his booking photos and all the all of the details that they write down about the person. Uh, And um, I was able to Xerox a lot of pieces and then, you know, come back to uh, New York once we got started with this background for that part of his life. So I had maybe 14 weeks of prep on Malcolm X. I'm always researching. On Amistad, I brought a library to the wardrobe truck, and I had books because we uh, we were dealing with a period that was so long ago. There were weren't even photographs to look at. I right. had to look at a lot of art books and art history and understand like the artist's direction and the composition because we're painting a picture too. And I really wanted uh, some of these images that I see in the research to come to life. On Selma, I had pictures of the uh, march across the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge. The president doesn't want us to march today. The courts don't want us to march. But we must march, we must stand up, we must make a massive demonstration of our moral certainty. And I really wanted to make sure that those first 20 people who were in the front of the line really looked like the first 20 people in the actual march. So if someone had a cap on and I was racing in there to make sure that cap was pitched right or there were enough you know, trench coats or whatever it was. And so that research process and that implementation right. happens constantly throughout the shooting process. So the Black Panther, uh, not a real person, not a real place, not a real time, uh, all all entirely uh, fictional. Uh, So there's not references in the way there are here about Selma or the Harlem Renaissance or any of the rest. I needed to make him a part of the real world. Uh-huh. And I needed to connect to Africa in a way that people could see that he was a part of that continent. Of the real Africa on some level. Of the real Africa. And that they paid homage to the ancient African traditions that are disappearing and that they knew from which they came. So you had 
the 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 uh, I looked at the stick fighters, the Surma stick fighters, um, and how the men, you know, draped the cloth around their bodies, and I was inspired by, by that. I looked at the Tuareg um, people and how they used the beautiful purples and gold and silver, and you know, and I looked at the Maasai warriors and and infused that red color onto the Dora Milaje. And I needed something like that. I needed Ryan's direction. That's Ryan Coogler. Yeah, Ryan Coogler, our director. You know, I needed him to say the women in the Dora Milaje don't need to be, you know, scantily clad. These, these soldiers. The, yeah. These soldiers, these yeah. soldiers need to have protection. Right. They need to have arm rings and neck rings that are not only paying homage to ancient tribes, but is also really practical as far as protection as a fighter. Um, I want the women uh, to have this split toe boot and be in flat boots, not have on heels like we see a lot of superheroes. Yeah. You know, we don't have to do that. We can do something different. We can be we can be unique and we can actually be more realistic and it will still be appealing. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, the Dora Milaje, the, the soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, one mm-hmm. of whom is played by Lupita Nyong'o. So mm-hmm. talk about her costume from like top to bottom and the, the various inspirations for mm-hmm. each bit of it. Lupita's Dora costume was the conception of Ryan Meiderding's team at Marvel. So what I have interpreted from their initial concept was the Dora Milaje wear a uh, battle harness. So the harness I connected by the leather strapping that you see going around her shoulders and Ving down her front that's connected to a tabard in the front and also connects to a skirt in the back. So because there is this long vertical tabard down the center front, I felt like if you're going to have a, a placard in the front of your body, it needs to have some kind of meaning. It mm-hmm. needs to have some type of purpose. So I used the intricate beading that you see in ancient African tribal ceremonies, which for the Maasai is this gorgeous red beading where they, they also paint their heads, they paint their bodies in this gorgeous red. So I upped the color, I intensified the red, and then I added the beading to this tabard so that it would have some meaning that they could hand this portion of their costume down to their daughter or their granddaughter who proved to be a worthy of protecting the king. The drape in the back um, I made up in leather because of the Himba tribe. The Himba tribe wear these leather drapes that have these rings on them and studs on them made out of metal so that when they move, you hear this jingling right. uh, and it's a very light sound, but you can hear it. And uh, when all the girls are dressed and they're coming to set, you actually hear them approaching. It's magnificent and it should it should go in a museum. It should go to the Metropolitan Museum. Mm, thank you. Um, bravo. Uh, now, the Black Panther isn't even out yet and there are already, I see... Uh, Kids, people, cosplayers uh, trying yes. to do these costumes yeah. at gatherings like Comic-Con. Uh, how does that feel to you? I am so, like, it's the best form of honoring, you know, what I have done because 
they haven't seen the film yet and they're already affected by the imagery. And that feels to me like it has filled a big void in the cosplayer world where you uh, didn't have someone that maybe looked like you that you could really, you know, work on that costume and compete in the competitions that they have and, and actually feel like, you know, you have done everything, including your own human being self, you know, looks like what they look like. Right. And I think it was a, a, a void in the cosplayer's world that there weren't enough African-American superheroes in that genre. So I am super honored. Ruth Carter, thank you very much for explaining to me more than I'd ever known before about movie costume design. Thank you. It was a great talk, and I appreciate being on. You can see Ruth's costume designs in Black Panther, which opens everywhere. And I mean everywhere on February 16th. And if you'd like to see some of her designs for the movie right now, check out the photographs and concept art for Black Panther on our website, pri.org slash Studio 360. Coming up, the internet has spoken. Comic Sans is the most hated font out there. A technology educator makes a serious case for a goofy typeface. You know, if somebody has just learned how to change the typeface to Comic Sans in their email and they've been sending email for two months, the last thing you want is to be like, well, there's a bunch of internet people who think that font is dumb. That's next on Studio 360. We love stories about works of art, paintings, novels, movies, architecture, theater, anything that have changed people's lives. We gather them for our series, Aha Moments, such as this story we heard from Randy Levin, who lives on Long Island and listens to the show on WNYC. Without sounding like I stalk Billy Joel, I have a complete collection of anything he's recorded that's been released, including old audio tapes when he was in a group called The Hassles, which was when he was in high school. And then when he was living in L.A., he was in a heavy metal band called Attila. And I, I play it sometimes thinking, what were you thinking, Billy? But I think all his music really tells a story, and it tells real stories. And he just does it in a, in a really honest way. Now John at the bar is a friend of mine. At some point in my life, I didn't think I was going to become a father. I was in my late 40s at that point, you know, even before I was married. It just, okay, it's not going to happen. And I, to be honest, I was really sort of ambivalent. Uh, my wife loves telling the story that when she came home and said, I'm pregnant, I actually said, oh, yeah, good luck with that thing. Because I just, I wasn't thinking about what she said. She said, good luck with that. And it didn't really hit me, but we had twins. And once they arrived, I mean, I hate sounding like a cliche, but really your entire world changes. So late, but I'll wait through the long night. 
driving in my car, I remember very clearly, LIE on the way into the city, MP3s playing, shuffled, all of a sudden lullaby comes on, and I know the words by heart, so I started singing along, but all of a sudden as I'm hearing myself sing and I'm hearing Billy Joel's words, I'm like, wait a minute, and I, I played it back. Good night, my, Good night, angel, my angel, time, time to, to close your eyes. Your and save these questions for another day. I think I know what you've been asking me. I think you know what I've been trying to say. I promised I would never leave you. And you should always know, wherever you may go, no matter where you are, I never will be far away. It just absorbed into my skin and stopped me in my tracks. Tears are pouring down my cheeks. I mean, I know the traffic's bad, but I'm crying and I'm listening to the words and each stanza is making it worse because all of a sudden the lyrics took on a whole new meaning. Good night, my angel, now it's time to sleep And still so many things I want to say being conscious of being an older father. I'm not a 20-year-old dad. I'm a 49-year-old dad. So how much time am I really going to be here? It's a real stunning, in-your-face reminder of my mortality, that I'm not going to always be here for them. You know, at the beginning, I promised you I would never leave you. And that's a lie. No, You know, no parent wants to break a promise to their child. So the only way I could never leave you is if you remember the things we've done. Remember all the songs you sang for me When we went sailing on an end. I wish I could sing this song to my girls every night. But the problem is I can't sing. So instead, there are things that we say, like Goodnight Princesses of Westbury, which is where we live. Or, you know, I love you to the moon and back. Or little rituals where I'll flip them in bed the wrong way and and play these games. (laughs) Silly stuff that we do. I'm the one that gets them ready in the morning to go to school. So I'll say, what do you want for breakfast? And what do do we have? Like, it's a restaurant and it's not the same breakfast every single day. And I'll frog eyeballs or rattlesnake tongue, you know. And they know that I'm the funny dad little rituals they can remember and then maybe when they have kids do some of those same things and it keeps me alive to my daughters it keeps me alive to their kids and I'm not just a picture now there's a part of me sort of lingering around somewhere what's important to me as a parent is to instill self-respect self-reliance you know I hate the idea but the truth about being a parent is you prepare them to leave. You know, your whole job, your whole life is getting them ready to leave. So I want them to be self-confident, self-assured, and happy. The last stanza is really about all of us. You know, one generation disappears, the next generation grows up, and they raise kids, and they disappear. And, you know, within 100 years... There's a lot of people lost in time and in memory. So it's to me the last someday will all be gone, but lullabies go on and on. They never die. 
that's how you and I will be. I will never die. I will always be in this song for you, the memories of us. Someday we'll all be gone, but lullabies go on and on. They never die, that's how you and I will be. Randy Levin used to be a stand-up comic and these days runs a business coaching high school kids on their college applications. That piece was produced by Studio 360's Louis Mitchell, with help from Jenny Lawton and Ariel Roland Waring. Is there some piece of entertainment or art that generated an aha moment for you that changed your trajectory in some way or your way of looking at the world? If so, tell us about it in an email or voice memo and send it to incoming at studio360.org. So the musician who obsesses Randy, Billy Joel, is for sure a crowd pleaser. He hasn't released a new album in a quarter century, but he has been selling out 20,000-seat shows at Madison Square Garden every month for the last four years. We're also interested in unpopular obsessions, by which I mean some cultural thing you love that's either totally unfashionable or that somebody like you is supposed to hate. That is what we cover for a feature we call Guilty Pleasures. In this installment, somebody who's a member of the so-called Digerati, but also a free speech advocate, which kind of explains her guilty pleasure. My name is Jessamyn West, and I'm a librarian and technology educator in central Vermont, and my guilty pleasure is the typeface Comic Sans. The internet has spoken. Comic Sans is the most hated font out there. Who would ever have imagined that a typeface could arouse such emotions that there would be an international campaign to ban it? Which says the font conveys silliness, childish naivete, irreverence. It is analogous to showing up for a black tie event in a clown costume. Comic Sans, the most hideous typeface known to man. Comic Sans is a typeface that was created by Microsoft in 1995, and it's an informal typeface. It's supposed to be sort of a handwriting-y kind of big round letters, maybe looking like something that you drew with a magic marker. I think a lot of people hate on Comic Sans without actually knowing why they're doing it or without actually knowing where it came from. was sort of created for a specific purpose. Microsoft was uh, working on, you know, ways to make the computers more accessible. And they had a program called Microsoft Bob. Microsoft Bob gives you and your household essential programs for home computing. Kind of a friendly, like, hi, my name is Bob. Okay, great. There's a talking dog there, and this is how you're going to interact with your computer, through this kind of friendly, cartoony interface. There we go. But the typeface that you would read when you saw the talking dog talk to you was Times New Roman, which is super not a talking dog font. So I saw this dog talking in Times New Roman and said, that's wrong. Vincent Conair is a guy who worked at Microsoft and was a font designer. I like comics. I have comic books. 
They don't talk in Times New Roman. Vincent was like, this is, come on, guys, you can do better than this. And they're like, oh, you can do better than this? And he's like, yeah, totally, I can do better than this. And so he created this informal, how would a talking dog talk typeface, which actually didn't make it into Microsoft Bob for a whole bunch of other stupid structural reasons, but it did make it into Windows 95. It fit the brief. You know, Microsoft had a thing. It was like, this is what we're trying to do with a new typeface. And, you know, Comic Sans nailed it. Whether or not it solves a problem for you and your inner office memo is completely different than how good it was at being what it was supposed to be. I had gotten a Windows 95 computer right about the time they were sort of coming out. And so my Windows 95 machine came with a short list of typefaces, most of which were not that interesting. You know, Times New Roman is kind of stodgy but epic. You had like Courier, which kind of looked like a typewriter. And so looking at your font list and saying, you know, I want to pick something that's different. Really, if you looked at the list of what you had, Comic Sans was what was different, which honestly I think is sort of why people kind of get snippy about it now. Like, well, that was its time for alternative, but then it went mainstream and now I don't like it anymore. It's a well-designed font, but for designy people, they don't like seeing it places they don't want it to be. And so it created this sort of context collapse where Comic Sans should have been in certain contexts, only Comic Sans was everywhere. Like flannel shirts, they existed for lumberjacks and you could wear them and they were great when you were cutting down trees in the woods and they meant a certain thing and you knew certain things about a person who wore a flannel shirt. But then they became a fashion point and suddenly everyone was wearing them even if they didn't need to be wearing them. And suddenly if you looked at a person wearing a flannel shirt, you didn't know what you thought you knew about them. And so there's this sort of context collapse where if somebody uses Comic Sans on their poster and it's a poster for a puppet show, you're like, okay, I get what you were getting at. It's a kid thing and you used a kid font. But if your boss is using Comic Sans on a memo that's telling everybody to, you know, not wear shorts at work, you're like, I'm not really sure if they're trying to be lighthearted about this. It's a style choice just like wearing a flannel shirt, right? The front page of the Sydney Morning Herald used Comic Sans. Comic Sans? Really? The most universally hated font? Yo, are you sure about this font? Yo, yo, really? <clears throat> Just because you're doing a comic doesn't mean you have to use Comic Sans. What? Hater. Up until now, the reason Republicans have had so much trouble repealing Obamacare is that their senators couldn't agree on how to replace it. Uh, some wouldn't vote for a bill that cut Medicaid too much. Some wouldn't vote for a bill that left any Obamacare taxes in place. Some wouldn't vote for the bill because it was printed in Comic Sans. It just doesn't look professional. It's completely appropriate for, you know, friendly flyers about a thing. Comic Sans is completely appropriate for your goofy Christmas letter that talks about the things that have gone on in your family and you can probably put it in red and green typeface, right? It's fairly legible. I've heard people talk about Comic Sans being really useful for sort of ESL materials, right? Comic Sans can make the language itself seem less assuming, less problematic, less in your face. People who use Comic Sans are trying to say, look at me, I'm a bit wacky. They're trying to be funny, but they haven't the wit to think of an actual joke. So they fall back on a comic book style typeface as if that'll do. I think for a lot of people, computers feel 
formal. They feel like work. They feel like something that's a little difficult to kind of get through and understand. And Comic Sans is a way of being like, hey, here's a way to be informal with your computer, which I think a lot of people desperately want. Definitely digitally divided people desperately want to find a way to interact with their computer that doesn't just feel like they're getting beat up by it and told what to do. And Comic Sans is relieving to them. I work at a local vocational school and I teach adult education and I teach people how to use computers. So a lot of these people are people who don't have a very sophisticated understanding of technology. And so to them, this sort of rarefied air of font choice, you know, if somebody has just learned how to change the typeface to Comic Sans in their email and they've been sending email for two months, I'm like, way to go. You learned how to customize and personalize because that is a a net good for your interaction with technology, essentially. And the last thing you want is to be like, well, there's a bunch of Internet people who think that font is dumb. What you want to do is encourage them to make it their own. And if they're Comic Sans people, they should be using Comic Sans. Comic Sans should exist because it helps people feel better about their computers. Everything else seems detailish to me. That piece was produced by Studio 360's Evan Chung with help from Skylar Swenson and Lauren Hansen. So is there some unpopular digital doodad you've got a soft spot for? Like, for instance, Clippy, that animated paperclip who started offering unsolicited advice to Microsoft Office users in the late 1990s. Remember, it looks like you're writing a letter. Would you like help? Or CD cases, or some movie or song or cultural anything for which your love might surprise people. Out yourself in an email or voice memo and send that to guiltypleasures at studio360.org and we might bring you on the show to talk about it. Dorothy Parker said the greatest favor anybody can do for aspiring writers is to shoot them now while they're happy. The second greatest favor, in her opinion, was to get them a copy of The Elements of Style. Writers don't agree on very much, but we're pretty much in lockstep about one thing, a little volume called The Elements of Style. It's a writing guide that began 100 years ago as a privately distributed pamphlet by a Cornell English professor named William Strunk, Jr. But then, in the 1950s, a former student of Strunk's, E.B. White, The New Yorker writer, suddenly famous as the author of Charlotte's Web, revised and updated and published the book as a book. But one living Ivy League professor and writer is not a fan of Strunk and White, somebody of whom I'm a big fan, John McWhorter. John teaches linguistics, philosophy, and music at Columbia University. He's also the host of a podcast called Lexicon Valley, where on a recent episode, he railed against the elements of style. John McWhorter, welcome back to Studio 360. Thanks for having me, Kurt. My highly literary mother was a huge devotee of Strunk and White. It was really part of the catechism in our household. So, your anti-strunk and white screed uh, <laughs> is an exciting heresy for me, especially, uh, to, to discuss. Glad to lend the service. But in case people aren't familiar with uh, the elements of style, explain what it is. 
Well, what it is is in itself a, a thoroughly readable and wise-seeming book, which comes from a kind of fascicle of advice that an otherwise not well-known English teacher put together during the teens. Uh, the 19-teens. The 19-teens, yes. It's, it's been a while. And E.B. White happened to be one of his students and cherished this fascicle. At Cornell. And, at Cornell and added to it. What does fascicle and, mean? Uh, fascicle is a word that Mr. I Mr. Professor Linguist. And I'm now realizing that makes it sound like I'm pretentious, and I guess I am. But basically, a bundle of small, interesting Uh thoughts. And Uh so really, it was a pamphlet, basically. And it's a lovely little book, and I remember reading it when I was younger, and you think, this is sage advice. You feel like you have knew a lot of it already, and then there are these other things that you wouldn't have known, and you feel like you're getting that which maybe you missed. Right. But it was based on the, in large part, subjective feelings of these two men about prose that was maximally effective and also clear. Right. There are, in addition to these general commonsensical rules about writing, uh, there are some very specific ones, Mm -hmm. such as uh, avoid almost always in the way that it's used the word hopefully. Here to explain that is the book, an audio book of the elements of style. Hopefully. This once useful adverb meaning with hope has been distorted and is now widely used to mean I hope or it is to be hoped. Such use is not merely wrong. It is silly to say, hopefully I leave on the noon plane is to talk nonsense. Do you mean you leave on the noon plane? in a hopeful frame of mind? Or do you mean you hope you leave on the noon plane? Whichever you mean, you haven't said it clearly. That, oh, that. wow. Especially for, for Americans, that accent and the pacing makes it sound so authoritative. That's Frank McCourt, the late oh, great wow. memoirist and teacher uh, from The Elements of Style. And again, audiobook of Elements of Style, an odd thing just on its own in terms. Itself, yeah. But... So that anti-hopefully rule, mm-hmm. I'm not fussy when other people do it, but I never mm-hmm. use it wrong. I completely obey yeah. uh, Strunk and White, and you think I'm prissy, and they're prissy. <laughs> to be honest, that one, it's utterly <laughs> absurd. The idea that to say, hopefully, she'll come on time implies that you might mean that she might come with hope shining in her eyes. That's simply not true. Or if you say something like, certainly she's going to come. That means that we are certain, or the person who says it is certain they're going to come. You don't mean that she's going to come walking with an air of certainty. The sentence is not unclear at yeah. all. And yet I, too, was raised on the idea that there's something wrong with using, hopefully, in that perfectly innocent way. There's a lot of advice in Elements of Style that seems actually counterintuitive. Hopefully, I guess, the anti-hopefully thing is kind of one. Uh, but there's this one. Do you mind me asking a question? Do you mind my asking a question? In the first sentence, the queried objection is to me, as opposed to other members of the group asking a question. In the second example, the issue is whether a question may be asked at all. Do you mind my asking a question, which they say is the right way. Weirdly, I find whenever I have found myself putting it that way, Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I've made a mistake. 
Well, I don't feel like I'm making a mistake if I say, do you mind my asking a question? But frankly, I think that if I had always said it that way, I would not be married and wouldn't have dated much. <laughs> it's more formal. <laughs> do you mind me asking a question? It's perfect English. You can see uh, it way back in Beowulf. Nobody had a problem right. with that. And that's a perfect example right. in that he made up. This is just this quirky guy's. That he's making up these readings of the sentences, which yeah. really I don't think have any general validity. And the problem with it, Kurt, is that these things make good people insecure about their speech and their writing. I, all linguists have stories like this where you're minding your business, talk about dating or whatever, and somebody says, well, I feel like I should be careful when I talk around you because I'm afraid you're judging. And what they mean by judging is things like, do you mind me asking a right. question? And we're not even thinking about it, and we shouldn't be because those things aren't real. They also warn uh, against using nouns as verbs, <laughs> which I have to say, I am in many cases highly sympathetic to. Here's how it's put in the book. Many nouns have lately been pressed into service as verbs. Not all are bad, but all are suspect. And be tattooed the next day. (laughs) That's right. It's just, you can't help it. You know, frankly, I'm a... kind of a starchy person. I don't like novelty either. I want everything to stay the same. That's I'm still why, wearing... That, that's why I love talking to you about this, because you're supposed to be the starchy guy. Yeah. I'm wearing a cardigan sweater right now, and yeah. not in irony. Both of us are. <laughs> See? And so it's not that I'm thinking, oh, let it all hang out. I like keeping it all you know, tucked in. But when it comes to language, we have to understand that inherently, it's like changes in the clouds. You couldn't stop it if you wanted to. You have to enjoy right. the parade. Um, now I'm going to transition... Uh, to the next topic, <laughs> omitting needless words, uh, which stupid, drunk and white talk about. It sounds like great <laughs> advice, uh, but uh, you think it can go too far? It does go too far because the way they demonstrated it with things like don't say give me a kiss, just say kiss. But the problem is that give a kiss and kiss are not really the same word. And so he kissed her, he gave her a kiss. He gave her a kiss is, well, toodaloo might be the grandmother. He kissed her, it probably involves some tongue and so on. Those are different words. Or he took a look, he looked at it. Take a look conveys something slightly different, just as take a walk and walk are not the same thing. If you look at Strunk and White, you get the idea that you're supposed to shave away those takes and dids and things like that. Speaking of which, here is a bit from a song you mentioned in your podcast. Mm, Would you like to take a walk? Mm, Do you think it's going to rain? Ain't you tired of the talkies? I prefer the walkies. Something good will come from that. <laughs> and that is Annette Hanshaw singing. Thank you for giving her name. Would yeah. you like to take a walk? And uh, see, imagine that being, uh, do you wish to walk? Or just, do you want to walk in the park? That's not the same. It's take a walk. But that's a song. Still, if you talk to somebody, so, would you like to walk? She's not going to go. Would you like to take a walk? It implies something less formal. It implies that it's only going to take so long. It takes away from the physical action of moving your legs and implies what the walk is for. It has a different meaning. To shorten it would be to say something else. Right. This is, I think, a different kind of rule that they have in Strunk and White. Let's hear it. The formula to express the speaker's belief regarding a future action or state is, I shall... I will express a determination or consent. A swimmer in distress cries, I shall drown. No one will save me. A suicide puts it the other way. I will drown. No one shall save me. 
Now, this distinguishing between will and shall. Now, the problem there, of course, is that anybody who says shall almost in <laughs> any uh, context just is going to look like some person pretending it's 1940, right? Yes. <laughs> I love that one because, I mean, try to wrap your brain around what this rule supposedly is. I dare anybody to read that paragraph and yes. come away with a you know, strong sense of what to do in the way that you do, for better or for worse, with the hopefully business. It's so arbitrary. No human being has ever used it that way who had anything to do except read Strunk and White and like things. And quite simply, that whole idea about shall just goes back to some guy. His name yeah. was Wallace. He was a brilliant man. He did lots of other stuff. And he created this business about shall and some oh, really? people listened B- to it. Before Strunk? Oh, yeah. Oh, Strunk yeah. didn't create that. That goes uh-huh. back to John Wallace back in the 1600s. It's just, he just made it up. It has nothing to do with the way English had ever gone. It's just the way he wanted it to be. And therefore, that paragraph should be ignored. I use shall sometimes to strike a note of irony. I mean, right. there, there are uses for it, but that... You partic- mean pretending to be pretentious? Um, Something like that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about these sweaters. But no, that business in Strunk and White is one of those places I mean where really, you just have to clip that out. Yeah. Um, one thing they profess to hate, uh, Strunk and White, that I never really understood, I realized, is their anti-qualifier uh, rule. Here's that. Rather, very, little, pretty. These are the leeches that infest the pond of prose, sucking the blood of words. And here is one of those qualifiers being used repeatedly, as qualifiers like that are in great books all the time. Underneath her rather bold and cruel exterior. Sounded rather thin, but pleasant. The goose who talked rather fast. She's a rather queer child, full of notions. That is E.B. White uh, himself reading from his book, Charlotte's Web, published seven years before he published his rule against uh, Rather. And there you go. I mean, it's as simple as that. And so one doesn't want to overuse these qualifiers, as they call them. But to make people insecure about using them at all out of some flinty sense that you're just going to state your case and not hedge it by talking about whether it's very or it's rather or it's quite, has nothing to do with any language that human beings have spoken in the at least 80,000 and possibly 300,000 years that human language has existed. And it's funny how they, they can undercut themselves. For example, the whole business about avoiding the use of the passive, and yet in all sorts of passages, they use the passive. Right. You should be able to use the passive almost whenever you would want G- to. Give an example of passive voice so people know what we're passive talking Passive voice. And so, for example, the man was so moved by the performance that he went out and bought a new suit. Is that wrong? There's nothing wrong with that. Well, that's, that's passive voice. The performance so moved the man that he went out and bought a new suit. That's active voice. Now, I want to start with the man and put the performance in the background. That's not something that I think these men had reason to think about. We go through. But for some reason, in English, in our times, we're supposed to not use it very much. And so people walk around thinking there's something wrong with using the passive. And writers like you and me know how copy editors will mangle your sentence because you used a passive. You and I. You know, for example, did I do that? You see, keep it. Keep it. Don't edit that out because I think that the whole rule is ridiculous. So... Elements of Style is about as sacred of a cow 
outside of religion as I can imagine. When you did this podcast about it, did you get some blowback? No. Actually, I was gratified to see that a lot of people said that I had opened their eyes to a new way of looking at things, which is all that I want. I mean, people might not agree with everything that I say on these things, but for everybody to understand that Strunk and White does not have the authority of, say, the table of the elements or Grey's Anatomy, that we're really talking about certain perfectly brilliant but perfectly arbitrary human beings' judgments about how language should be. So they could, let's say uh, tomorrow the publishers of Strunk and White come to you and say, John, we've been convinced you're right. We want to make it Strunk and White and McWhorter. <laughs> uh, revise it and would you do that? I, well, they're not going to ask me to do that. But if they did, it's I would say, let's do this. And frankly, 60% of it would have to go. And I would add new things based on consultation. Yeah, I think there could be a strunk white and McWhorter. That sounds like a disease, but there could be a law firm, a different or there could be a different version that didn't have anything in it that did little but make people feel frustrated in their use of a language that most likely they're using with clarity and possibly even wit. It's not the way it has to be. And I completely understand why people like that book. It's compact. It's beautifully written. And you like the idea of learning the rules. It's like some people like the idea of learning the old-fashioned rules of etiquette. You feel like you're doing things the right way. But in that book, it's just – it's a couple of guys. Uh, John McWhorter, I can do this all day with you. Thanks for coming and see you again. Thank you for having me, Kurt. You can hear more from John McWhorter on his excellent podcast, Lexicon Valley – at slate.com slash lexicon valley. Would you like to take a walk? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's gonna rain? Mm-hmm. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is Louis Mitchell. Our producers are Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. And we had production assistance from Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. I was watching the way the wind was moving all the trees that were around. Mexican musical star Natalia Lafourcade. Then I was just trying to put that into something on my guitar. That's next time on Studio 360.